Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Nasek. Hello, Jason. Killer, mommy. Killer. Don't let her get away, mommy. Don't let her live. I won't, Jason. I won't. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing with spoilers of plenty the 1980 summer camp slasher Friday the 13th, starring Betsy Palmer, Adrian King, and Janine Taylor, directed by Sean S. Cunningham. This movie is rated R with a running time of one hour and 36 minutes. This is episode three of our Summer at the Cinema series, where all the movies we discuss in the month of July take place during the summer. So what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Terror and suspense abound in this 24-hour nightmare of blood. Camp Crystal Lake has been shuttered for over 20 years due to several vicious and unsolved murders. The camp's new owner and seven young counselors are readying the property for reopening, despite warnings of a death curse by local residents. The curse proves true on Friday the 13th, as one by one each of the counselors is stalked by a violent killer. This film is widely acclaimed for its horrifying and creative murder sequences. Friday the 13th, a 24-hour nightmare of terror. Awesome. So that was what's on the box. Jason, your quote was amazing. I don't know how I kept my composure. (laughs) I thought I was watching the movie again. Uh, For those of you listening at home, I told Bill, I was like, you know what? I'm I'm doing this quote solo because sometimes Bill and I will team up. I have him play one role. I'll play another. So I said, yeah, I'm doing this one solo. Sort of. (laughs) Meaning technically kind of playing two roles in one If you've seen this movie, you know what I'm talking about. And I wanted to just reaffirm what Bill has already said. There will be spoilers abound. Speaking of terror and suspense abound, there will be spoilers because there is a big twist at the end of this movie. And we hope that most of you listening have seen this classic before. But uh, just in case you haven't, well, go watch it. Then listen to this. There we go. All right, so let's move on to um, earliest memories then. What are some of our earliest memories of Friday the 13th? Bill, first of all, I'm just, I'm so happy to be doing this with you, man. It's a classic. It's an all-timer. And it was just a thrill for me to revisit this. And I'm just happy. I'm just happy. So I just wanted to say that first and foremost. It's a pleasure to be able to cover this with you, Bill Bant. My earliest memories of Friday the 13th from the year 1980. Bill, I was six years old when this came out. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. Little ones. Yeah. I didn't see it when I was six. Thank God. <laughs> me neither. Because this movie changed me forever. And I think I saw it probably when I was 11 or 12. So bottom line is, I've mentioned this before in previous pods. I'm a scaredy cat. I've never been a fan of slasher films. I understand why people are fans of these types of films. I just don't like to be scared usually. And I'm not a huge fan of the gore, although I have a healthy respect for all filmmakers and people involved in the process. And uh, especially 
let's just highlight the makeup effects for right now. And especially, you know, in this film, we, we have one of the all time greats working on this one, which I'm sure we'll get to. I just wanted to say that right off the bat as well, that I'm a scaredy cat and that ties into my earliest memory of viewing any portion of this film. In my memory, it really is the first scary and or slasher film I saw a bit of. (laughs) You'll understand what I'm talking about. I mentioned when it had been released, I was too young to see it. But when it was finally released on VHS, obviously more people had access to it and the word spread and more kids were seeing it. And according to my recollection, in either seventh or eighth grade, I was attending St. Peter's Catholic School in Antioch, Illinois. And I went to was probably my first school class party, like at night at someone else's house. And they had Friday the 13th playing on the TV. Everyone had gathered around. And it was like a cool thing to watch it and try to not get scared. But I was freaking out in my head. I was like, I can't believe we're watching this. I'm going to lose my mind. But I was sitting next to my grade school crush, Tracy Chisholm. Shout out to Tracy Chisholm. If you're listening out there, I remember you. I had a huge crush on Tracy. I I didn't want her to appear scared in front of her, but I couldn't help but look away at certain points. But I saw enough Bill Bam and it stayed with me. I didn't even see the entire film at that point, but I saw enough. And it was either the Kevin Bacon part or the mom part or person with the ax coming out from behind the door part. It was all of it. And it stays with me to this day. Also, early memory. The fact that the killer from this entire franchise was named Jason and That was a huge thing that came out of this first film and then also the following sequels. So when I introduced myself as a kid, often people would say, ooh, like Jason Voorhees, because my name's Jason. Like the bad guy, the killer from the movie? And I'd be like, yeah, 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 that's, yeah, aren't I scary? Even though I'd really never seen the movie. I remember, of course, the Kevin Bacon kill in this movie, which def- that's really the, that's the thing that changed me. It's still, it haunted me forever. And if I wasn't already looking under my bed every night before going to sleep, I was after that, after I'd seen that scene <laughs> as a kid. Definitely the sound design in this movie. It's part of the score. Shout out to, real quick, Harry Manfredini. Manfredini, it's a great name, for the kill, kill. That's what everybody used to say all the time. So we would always say that when we were trying to scare each other as kids. Uh, We were always mimicking that echoey voice that's part of the score in this movie. Camp Crystal Lake, Bill Bant. There's a real problem here because there was a nearby suburb to me in the Chicago area called Crystal Lake. And that really upset me. And I was like, is this where the story comes from? Is this where the killings happened? Could the killer still be wandering around nearby suburbs, including my own? Not good. Not good. I still remember being the most scared probably by the moment at the very end of this film, which we will discuss later in another segment. No doubt what gets me as a kid, I've talked about this with other things. I'm a fan of fantasy sci-fi films. It's always about the lore. It's the world building. So for me, It's my imagination that just runs with it, takes the story and runs with it. And that's what happened with this. And that's why I never wanted to know about it. I didn't want to see anything about it. And then once I did, I was like, 
damn it, now it's in my head and it's just going to grow into this horrible thing. And so there is some lore with this story, which actually I really appreciate at this point in my life. But when I was a kid, that's what happened. It's like, okay, now when I learned what the story was about, I was like, oh man, these murders happened at this camp. And then the, anyway, and then I'm just thinking about it too much. Now, of course, as a kid, this is where I got confused because I, I saw the movies probably a little bit out of order. I'm watching pieces of different movies at different times. So I always associated the hockey mask, of course, with Jason Voorhees. And uh, even the, the I associated the hockey mask with the original film, just anything Friday the 13th. But of course, when I finally went back to watch the original, uh, when I got a little bit older and understood what had actually happened within the story, I respected the idea, the twist. So it's just funny how I was just mistaken about a lot of things regarding the original film and what the movie was really about. So that's definitely a, an original uh, early memory, that damn hockey mask, which isn't in the movie. <laughs> no, not at all. So those are my early memories. How about you, Bill Bant? Yeah, for me, my earliest memories of this film, like you said, it came out in 1980. I was seven at the time and, of course, had not seen it. I think the first time I actually heard about it was we were over at a friend's house. It was in the Cub Scouts and it was our end of the year party. And we were at Greg Fink's house. And he was one of the first people in in our neighborhood that had cable. So we were watching, this is kind of funny, uh, the Muppet movie over at his house. Because that was the movie that was on <laughs> Saturday night at 8 o'clock. It was the debut there. Two things I was introduced to that night. Uh, the first time I ever heard about Dungeons and Dragons. And the first time I ever heard about Friday the 13th. And so this was maybe a couple of years later. And a couple of the kids were talking about how they had seen this movie, Friday the 13th. And uh, they were telling me about it. And I was like, whoa, yeah. Uh, yeah, that doesn't sound like my cup of tea. Um, so I avoided it for a while. And I think the first movie of the Friday the 13th series I saw, and this was only part of it, was the third one. And at that point, Jason had already had the mask. Right. So I had no idea up till middle of three, did not have a mask. And then the first one, it wasn't even Jason to begin with. So I really caught all of these in late night cable and I watched them. They were all kind of out of order. So I think I saw three okay. then I saw like six and then four and then two. And then I finally saw one. And yeah, like you, I was totally surprised because I'm expecting Jason and there is no Jason. Right. And I didn't know how I didn't know that there wasn't Jason <laughs> in the first one. I was like, this exactly. is a couple, of, a couple of years later. How did I not know this? How did I, how did I miss out on all this? Like you, the big reveal at the end, that definitely got me. Then I watched them in order. And like you, I got into it too. I at one point had actually written out a timeline of the whole series to figure out how things happen, how things fit in. I remember mm. at one point the movies were almost technically taking place in the future because you had um, Tommy from the fourth one who then grows up by the sixth one. And it was all kind of nuts, but yeah, I really got into the movies and yeah, it's just enjoyable watching. Yeah. Let's just get into it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. So I have to ask real quick for you to repeat the name of the, the who's the kid that you went over to his house. I knew you were going to do that. I, I, I love these names, man. Greg Fink. That's oh, just brilliant. Yeah. Not a great name to have as a, a kid. No, no. But I mean, it's a character out of a story, like out of a movie, Greg Fink. 
Yep. Did he know Trudy? What was her name? Trudy, <laughs> Trudy Desmond? No. They, no, they, Greg lived about four blocks away. Trudy was uh, Trudy lived across the street from me. And Trudy was the one that spoiled what movie was it again e- e. that we just did? E.T. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Are we going to talk about our initial thoughts? Yeah, some initial thoughts from Friday the 13th. Well, uh, let's start at the beginning. Always a good place to start. Oh, so the opening sequence, I had no memory of this whatsoever, but it's great. It's a great setup. 1958, Camp Crystal Lake. And it just starts right off the bat with the classic tropes, right? It's, it's the young couple about to uh, have some sexy time. And that's not good. We know that's not good in these types of movies. But uh, so we get our, our first kill, or I should say two kills in the beginning of this movie. And I, I enjoyed the opening sequence, actually, because you get, it's clearly the Psycho music, meaning the music from the film Psycho with the ee, 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 ee. And we get the great POV shots from the, uh, the killer. So we're actually climbing up like the stairs into the attic area where the kids are about to make love on the blanket. And yeah, young kids fornicating. We know what's going to happen after that. We get the great, the the young kid gets stabbed in the stomach and then the girl flipping out, she's freaking out and it's a freeze frame. We don't actually see her get killed. It's like, oh, we're going from freeze frame to then like washout blackout and the cool credit sweeping in Friday the 13th and it shatters the glass. It like comes through a glass pane right in your face. And it's like, wow, okay, this is cool. This is creative. So I thought that was cool. I like the opening scene. Uh, Just getting into the movie then. When we have an adorable Annie coming into town, this rustic rural area of New Jersey, we haven't gotten to the camp yet, but she's trying to get there. She's 20 miles away in this small town, and she goes into this local convenience store slash diner, and we're introduced to the whole lore. And they're warning her off from the get-go, just talking about, oh, you're going to Camp Blood? That place is a death curse. And then... Like she hops into a, tr- a truck with this guy, Enos, who's going to drive her halfway to the camp at least. And, and he talks about this, you know, yeah, don't you know, there was a kid that drowned there in 1957. There was murders in 1958 and these bad luck events of fires and the water was bad. And it's like, oh, geez, okay, this, there's a storied history here. Love that stuff. Love it. Great setup. Very creepy. But uh, then we get to the camp and we're introduced to these characters and we're introduced to... Kevin Bacon! Kevin Bacon! And nothing like some bacon in a Speedo. Oh, man. He was packing it in. Good for you, Bacon. Between the cutoff shorts and the Speedos. (laughs) Wow. This is early 80s right there. Oh, yeah. So we get our camp counselors, some attractive young uh, guys and girls, you know, prepping the camp because the kids haven't arrived yet. And it is Friday, June 13th. And uh, yeah, we're introduced to Steve Christie, who is the now owner. I believe his parents were owners before him, and now he's taken over. And uh, they're reopening. This is the grand reopening of Camp Crystal Lake. It had been shut down for some time, so they're, they're, it's like a brand new remodel here. And he's hired these kids to come in, I guess, and help him fix it up. And that's how it all starts. And it's all taking place over one day, 24 hours of terror. I love that we uh, have this character of Crazy Ralph. It's the town crazy. The fact that he was introduced earlier when I was talking about kind of the lore. And he's the one that kind of runs into Annie and says, uh, that, that camp has a death curse. He's a great character. And decides to hide in the kitchen pantry. 
at some point at the camp, which is nice. Uh, so I love me a little crazy Ralph in this movie. I guess apparently that walking around in raincoats and underwear was a thing back then. I'm just going to throw that out there. And uh, so here we go, Bill Bant, some initial thoughts. I, I was thinking, you know, what's the difference now watching this as an adult? And I'm thinking, what did I learn? What did I learn from watching this film today? And I have a list here. I got a handful of things that I, I learned, and I'm going to list them for you right now. Number one, when running in the woods, pick a direction and keep going straight if possible. Number two, listen to the crazy and or paranoid townies warning you to stay away. Just stay away. Three, never hitchhike. Four, never have sex. Five, don't do drugs. Six, if you're alone in the community bathroom at night and you hear noises, just grab your shit and make a beeline out of there. Seven, if someone is wandering around in a raincoat and you can't see their face and they don't speak, that's the killer. Eight, kill the bitch when she's down. That's all I got, Bill. Moving on. Look, I'll be honest. I wasn't sure what I was going to say about this movie now, watching it as an adult. First half, I'm going, mm, oh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about this. It's dated, of course. There's things I was going to, I expected it to be dated. But once it gets to the 53-minute mark of this film, Bill Bant, when Brenda is in her cabin, she hears the creepy voice outside. From then on in for me, I thought it was like rock and roll. We're like off to the races after that. This movie's smart, man. I, I have a respect for a healthy respect for it, especially for the time it was made, regardless of the time it was made. The pacing's pretty good for the most part. A couple of the kills are still super creative. The whole idea of what you don't see is scarier. They make the most of that. The makeup effects mostly hold up and are great and still very nightmarish. Like I mentioned, the last 40 minutes are pretty solid here. I love the camera work in this movie, the POV angles from the killer's point of view, the slow movements of the camera, that's pushing in slowly on characters. Very nice use of that. I love the use of the negative space in the frame, the composition of the frame where you're always like looking off to the side through open doorways, like is the killer going to come through there or why are we focusing on these doorways all the time? Yeah, the setting up the scares, everything to create tension is great. One of my final initial thoughts is Betsy Palmer as Mrs. Voorhees completely steals the show. She just steals the show at the end. It has a creative twisty flourish at the end. She's fucking creepy and amazing. Like I said, of course, a lot of this is dated and I know what's coming. And now that I'm adult, I just know too much. I've seen too many of these movies at this point, unfortunately for me. But this movie is a trailblazer and uh, still a trendsetter in the genre. And I appreciate it even more today. So there you go. How about uh, some initial thoughts from you, Bill? All right. Uh, yeah. So some of my initial thoughts uh, watching this was I love low budget horror movies that work. And this is certainly one that works. Even all these years later watching it, I was still impressed at what they were able to do. Um, I was surprised I couldn't remember. Like I remember most of the kills, but I couldn't remember the order in which they happened or even how some of the counselors got killed. So that was kind of cool trying to remember how that all went down and the order of which they were killed. And I thought the special effects, I mean, all this time later still held up for the most part. You really have to look at it to see, oh, okay, I can see that it's a fake prosthetic on the neck or even the the axe in the head. I was like, oh, that's, a, that's still pretty good. That's a pretty good looking shot all Absolutely. the years, years later. The big reveal at the end, I was kind of 
I compared it to Psycho. I'm like, oh my God, this is Norman Bates in reverse. So instead of Norman Bates, it's uh, Mrs. Voorhees. And Mrs. Voorhees is projecting two characters at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of interesting um, that she's playing the son and herself instead of Norman Bates playing the mom and himself. Shout out to Ned wearing the um, cheap ripoff Jim Mandich Dolphins jersey. I think that's what it looked like he was wearing. <laughs> so I just got to give kudos to that because, oh my God, how many times do you watch movies, unless it's a sports movie, no one ever wears, and we know it's because of licensing rights and all that. No one wears uh, sports teams, shirts, or any of that kind of stuff. Because like watching the, the Walking Dead, and you see all those zombies, I'm like, no, no one's got a Sixers jersey on or a, a football jersey. No, 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 no one's wearing that during the apocalypse or any okay. of these kind of movies. Um, so you kind of mentioned it with the special effects. So shout out to um, Tom Savini. Hell yeah. So he's the makeup artist who did the effects for that. He's also an actor, stunt performer, film director. He is known for his makeup and special effects on many of the George A. Romero movies, including Martin, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, and Monkey Shines. Um, so he did the makeup for this movie and part four. Um, he's also worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, The Prowler, and Eyes of a Stranger. This is kind of cool. He actually has a school, the Tom Savini's Special Makeup Effects Program, and it's a two-year academic program at the Douglas Education Center in Monison, Pennsylvania, which is right south of Pittsburgh. Uh, the program awards an associate degree in specialized business. Um, this school started in 2000. And I think it's still around because you never know with COVID what's going on. Um, And he actually does have a documentary coming out this fall called Smoke and Mirrors, the story of Tom Savini. So if you want to learn more about him, hopefully when that documentary comes out, you can check it out. Excellent. Yeah, I think I'll leave it there with initial thought. Yeah, there's just some of the things that kind of stood out. Uh, That's great, man. If we want to get into favorite scenes and moments, uh, you named something in your initial thoughts that would be a good segue. Okay. Are you ready? Yes. Let's do it. All right. You'd mentioned uh, some of the prosthetics that are somewhat noticeable, but that leads me to my first favorite moment, and I'm just calling it the Annie kill. And I mention it because it has a nostalgic thing for me. It was one of those really creepy moments for me as a kid watching this movie. Now, in this sequence, we understand that Annie, this is how we're introduced to the lore of the story. I mentioned earlier, Annie comes to town. She's going to be working at Camp Crystal Lake as the cook. She's going to be working in the kitchen. And uh, she's walking into town for some reason. She's lacking transportation. And one of the locals gives her a ride halfway there. And she's got to hitchhike the rest of the way. So she hops in a Jeep with the wrong person. Don't hitchhike, kids. And notices that they've passed the entrance to the camp or the road leading to the entrance to the camp. She literally jumps out of the Jeep, which is pretty brave on Annie's part. And uh, she's busted her foot or her ankle. She's limping off in the forest. We get the great POV shots. The killer's chasing her and finally tracks her down. And this will be the end of Annie as we know her, unfortunately. She's really adorable, actually. Love her look in this. I was sad to see her go. But she's basically pushed up against a tree and has her throat cut. And the way it happens, Milbant, just creeps me out because it's as if Look, we understand from a filmmaker's point of view that they need to get a good angle on it to display the cool makeup effect of her throat being sliced open and the blood coming out. And you do see the prosthetic on her neck. It's discolored a bit. It's not quite flesh colored. So the coloring's a bit off. 
but the gash itself and the opening, the fleshy opening, and then the blood just seeping out. And the fact that the actress, Annie, she like surrenders to the fact that she's going to die and just kind of lets it happen. And then it just cuts away from it after the fact. It's, it's just kind of eerie and gory to me. So that's my first, I don't, I don't even I don't want to say it's a favorite moment, but really effective moment for me. No, that's a good one too, because um, I know in the beginning when we see Annie hitchhiking into town, I knew right away, I'm like, oh, this is definitely filled somewhere in the Northeast. It has that Northeast look with the oh, yeah. brick and stone. And I was like, oh, I got to find out where they uh, shot this. And it was in uh, upper New Jersey. And it does, once again, it kind of mimics Psycho because here we are, we're introduced to this character, Annie. We know she's going to this camp to work as the cook. So if you think about your horror tropes, you think this is going to be the last, the final girl. This is going to be the final girl. Agreed. Yeah. And she's not. She's uh, in Psycho. She's um, Marion Crane, where she gets killed halfway throughout the movie. And at this point, she only, she only makes it 10 minutes into the movie. So that was kind of cool that we introduced to someone. You kind of get the backstory of what's going to happen. And she never even makes it to the camp. Right. And it is, yeah, that is one of the kind of weird things about this. And I'll talk about later how these people seem to surrender to being murdered. Yeah. Fight. Fight. Agreed. Um, so for me, going on to favorite scenes and moments, my first one, anything with Crazy Ralph. I love <laughs> awesome. Crazy yeah. Ralph. And, He's great. All right. So confession here. So my first year out in California, trying to think it was 2007, 2008. And of course, this is the middle of writer strike. And I was like, oh, crap, that's not good. I got to find some work. So I actually worked at uh, Universal Studios Halloween Horror Nights. And I actually got to play Jason, Hockey Mask Jason. I think there were six of us. Four of us were stationed in the maze. And then two of us were doing the uh, backlot tour. And um, back then, it wasn't every night like it is now. I think I I only did 11 nights. And you got there at like 4 o'clock to do your makeup. And I think you got in the maze at around 7, 7.30. And then you worked to midnight or 1 o'clock. And you you went on your way. And funny enough, one of the things I found out about working about this was I had a latex allergy. Oh, shit. Yeah. So... Luckily, my makeup was pretty simple. They just put on uh, spray paint to black out my eyes. And then they put like this um, prosthetic around my head. But yeah, after the first night, I got all like itchy and welty. So I had to buy like this little hoodie thing to put on top of that and then put the prosthetic on. And that kind of kept me safe. But my dream role is when I get old enough, I want to play Crazy Ralph. I want to be the guy like in the queue while people are waiting in line. And just going up to people going, going to Camp Blood? You're doomed. <laughs> I'm the messenger of God. That's right. You're doomed if you stay here. This place is cursed. Cursed. It's got a death curse. That's what I want to do. That is on my bucket list. I want to play Crazy I love it. I, I love it. fucking uh-huh. love <laughs> Crazy Ralph. Both times he appears in the film, very early in the film, like you mentioned, and he runs into him first. And then there's another scene where he actually shows up on the uh, campgrounds and tells them that they should get out of there. They're doomed. Love me some crazy Ralph. So if anyone from Universal is listening to this, hopefully in like 15 years, if you're still doing the Friday the 13th maze, I want to be crazy Ralph. I think it's brilliant, Bill. I love that you want to do it. I think you would be wonderful at it. And I could see you doing this like crazy Ralph should be working the queue. That's going into the maze. Yeah. I have my like little outside. bike. Yeah. Because you're like, he to tell everybody to heed your warning to just, just, yeah. With the bike, just kind of 
creeping up on people maybe like really like slowly they're not paying attention you just kind of like go up and over their shoulder and going i'm a messenger of god you, you need yeah. to leave get out of here this maze has a death curse or whatever. that would be amazing just kind of like you're the warm-up guy but you're like the warm-up scary guy yes for them going into the maze great idea thank you uh so my first favorite scene i'm going straight for the bacon kill i had that down too go ahead yeah it's a must yes so definitely this is it man I, this is what i wrote bacon is given the bacon to marcy Yes. <laughs> well, you got to have some uh, some sex, some uh, sexy time in this kind of movie. Kevin Bacon is playing the role of Jack and uh, he's dating Marcy and uh, they find some quiet time in one of the cabins and in one of the bunks to get it on. And we uh, as they are making the sex, you know, we watch them becoming intimate. It's uh, candlelit. It's quiet, but it's creepy too because it's raining outside. It's really dark, and we all know this is just not going to end well. Something bad is about to happen. And in the midst of their lovemaking, the camera tilts upward to the upper portion of the bunk that they're on, and uh, we get the reveal of our poor, obnoxious, and lonely Ned. Ned's dead, baby. Ned's dead. Yep. Yeah. So he's in the top bunk, broke cut, bleeding. We didn't actually see how he got killed, but he is most definitely dead. And his body is bleeding out on the top bunk while they're making love on the bottom of the bunk. So in the midst of Jack and Marcy getting it on, uh, there's cutting back and forth. So it's that. And then it goes back to the main cabin where a fire is going and we have the rest of the gang, Alice and Brenda and Bill, and they're playing strip Monopoly. This is like filler, this part. Just kind of like blah, blah, blah. They're playing strip Monopoly. It's slightly amusing. Like, how does this work exactly? But you figure it out. You land on somebody's property, but instead of paying the rent, you got to take off a piece of clothing. All right, that's cute. That's fun. We know this is all building up to something. So cuts back to Bacon and Marcy. And Marcy, this is now post-sex. Marcy needs to pee. Cool. Understood. She gets up, and this is the first time we see a character in her underwear put on a raincoat and just leave the cabin in that only, which, okay, you're braver than me. So she goes to find the community bathroom. Meanwhile, Bacon's by himself, and he decides to relax a bit. You know, after after the sexy time, you got to light up a fat J. <laughs> you got to <laughs> light up the joint. Well, now you're doing drugs in a horror movie, and that's a big mistake. So he's uh, taking a puff off the joint, and a drop of blood falls on his forehead, and he looks up. And I love this. It's just one of the scariest moments, because you th- I hadn't seen it in so long, and I thought it was going to play out one of a dozen different ways. But as soon as he rubs the blood, uh, the drop of blood from his forehead and looks up, all of a sudden, a hand from beneath the bed reaches out and over and grabs him by the forehead, holding him to the bed. And then it goes to a profile shot. And we see this, like the head of a spear, like coming through his neck. It's coming from beneath the bed, through the bed, through the back of his neck, through out the front of his neck. You see the skin from his neck stretching as the point of the spearhead is coming through his neck. 
Blood is gushing. It looks like a piece of flesh comes out of his neck at the same time. And again, quick cut, totally gory. And bacon is cooked. And it's brutal. So no bueno for bacon. And that's just, it's an iconic sequence. It's a great death for Kevin Bacon's character, Jack, in this movie. Stays with me. So, and my question for you, Bill Band, is it like, is that like a spear from like a dart gun sort of thing? Or what is that? I thought maybe it was one of the arrows from the archery. Oh, that's a better call. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Duh. But it, you could be right. That would make sense for sure. That would make more sense for sure. I'm just uh, thinking of what they would have in the camp. Yeah. Yeah. That. That's why I was like, would that be in the work shed? Would they have something like a, a spear gun for, I don't know, catching fish i don't know yeah, yeah. that that'd be a little bit too much but anyway yeah they don't use the spear gun until three <laughs> um yes definitely iconic scene i think certainly what makes it iconic is the fact that it is kevin bacon that gets killed in the scene uh-huh. i think it's cool too um that you mentioned is the blood drips on his head and does he even have time to realize put one and one together oh my god this is blood what's up there <laughs> done that's the shocker of it. I was expecting him to like look up or lean right. up something. You would but think you would have some really time. Quick. Yeah, sometime to investigate. And it never happens. Yeah. Um, watching the scene, which made me laugh, was there's the lovemaking, and then there's the shot of Marcy grabbing Kevin Bacon's ass. And the two things I was thinking of, A, was that a stunt butt? And B, what what would it be like? So I've always watched all these on TV. So I was just kind of laughing, thinking, imagine seeing this huge ass on the movie screen back in 1980. Butt cheeks. Yep, the butt cheeks. That made me chuckle. That's great. Yeah. It is definitely an iconic scene of the film. Uh, So for me, I'm moving on to a moment, moment slash scene, because this made me laugh hysterically while we were watching it. So you mentioned um, the proprietor of the camp, the person that's taking this over is Steve Christie. And in the very beginning, as soon as the counselor showed up, he's taken off for some reason. I think he's getting supplies. I don't know what he's supposed to be getting. And he needs to get back before it starts raining, even though he leaves the Jeep without the soft top on. So you have no idea when it's supposed to rain. It doesn't even look like it's going to rain, but he knows. A lot of questions. Yes. With all of this. Yes. With, I have a lot of questions with Steve Christie. Yeah. I have a lot of questions for Steve. Okay. We'll get to that. Yeah. So the murders are happening at the camp. What the hell's happened to Steve? So we cut to a diner and Steve's in the diner and he's finishing his sandwich or coffee or whatever he has. And he's there with uh, Sandy, the waitress and Sandy, the waitress definitely has something for steve yeah she is flirty flirty and Uh sandy is um probably the least attractive woman in the whole film let's just put it that way unfortunately but she seems super sweet though absolutely she's working hard for the money she's keeping the place running you know yes so they're kind of having a little back and forth and um Steve's finishes food. He's like, I got to get going. He's like, what do I owe you, Sandy? And Sandy's just like a night on the town. And it was just so funny because she kind of does like that. So she kind of so she can reach out and just kind of touch him. And that just kind of made me laugh because I'm like, oh, yeah, she really wants Steve. And then what made me laugh is then the next shot is Sandy turns away, I think, to get his ticket. And they have this close-up shot of Steve, and they kind of hold on it. And it looks like he's staring at Sandy, kind of checking her out. Like, hmm, maybe I should take <laughs> take this on. I'm like, oh, my God, hysterical. Wow. 
Great. Yeah. That's yeah. It, that shot. It shot holds a little too much. He really yeah. looks like he's kind of checking around as he walks away. And then the fact that whatever he ordered for dinner only costs two twenty five. Oh, I thought about that too. Sure. That made me laugh. And then he gives her, I believe, three dollars to pay for it. Yeah. And she goes to give him the change. He's like, oh, you keep it. And I just laughed. I'm like a 75 cent tip. But I guess that's a lot then in 1980. But it just made me laugh out loud. I'm like, wow, big tipper there. She should, her line should have been, wow, now I can retire. I know. But I, I, then again, if you think about it, 75 cents for a 225, I mean, that's that's a big percentage. That just whole thing just made me laugh. Just the, the flirtiness. Steve may be checking Sandy out that he's kind of like, well, things aren't working out with Andy right now. I could tap this. And the fact he bought dinner for 25. That's hilarious, man. He's like, <laughs> it's storming pretty bad out there. I, yeah. It might be a long night. I might be trapped here for a while. So let's make the most of it, Sandy. Yeah. I don't know if there's anybody else at the diner at that time. So who knows? He can just yeah. throw up on the counter. Even oh, more sexy. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen it in a while and you see Sandy, you're like, no way, no way. Yeah, she's, oh yeah, she's a looker. I wanted to mention this really quickly. After the bacon kill, we have Marcy who's in the uh, community bathroom and she's in one of the stalls and she's reading some of the graffiti that's on one of the walls. And she reads 40 Yards to the Outhouse by Willie Make It, which is a joke. And it's such a dad joke. And I had to bring it up because it's something I used to say all the time as a kid, not from this movie. I want to say I heard it from my dad, actually. Funny stuff there. Uh, Just a great memory for me. And my next favorite moment is probably the first time upon this rewatch when I, I really became creeped out. And that's when Brenda, whom has also been wandering around in her underwear and raincoat, has returned to her cabin. And she's now finally put on a, night, a nightgown. She's getting ready for bed. It opens a book. And all of a sudden, we hear this creepy kid's voice coming from outside. And it's just going, help me. I hate that shit. It scares the hell out of me. It's just so creepy, man. I love the sound design, though, of this and the idea of it. And then you get, of course, the breathing within the score of this movie. Again, the and she wanders out for some reason only in her nightgown and into the pouring rain with, I believe, a flashlight. And that's about it. So I just like the idea of this. And then you hear the voice again and again. It's like, help me. I'm over here. Help me. And it's just super creepy. It sounds like a little kid, either a boy or a girl. I'm not sure, but it's a little kid. And so she's following the voice in the dark, in the pouring rain, in her nightgown. And finally, she is what you think is like near another cabin or whatnot. But all of a sudden, we uh, well, we do get a shot of the person in the raincoat throwing the power switch to the lights that illuminate the archery range. And there she is. Brenda is standing in the bright lights in the rain. It's a cool shot, actually. It's really bright. But she's standing in her night- nightgown just sopping wet. And the lights, she's in the middle of this empty archery range in front of one of the targets. And it's a great way to set up this tension because earlier in the film, Brenda had been on the archery range and it was Ned that shot an arrow right past her and hit the target, like a really near miss. And she freaks out and yells at Ned. So we know the archery range is there. 
And at this point, when she's wandering out to the archery range and she's just standing out there in the wide open, almost standing in front of the target and the lights are and we know the killer is there. It's so it would have just been such an easy kill right there. You're going, she's going to get nailed with an arrow right here in the neck, in the face or whatever. It's going to be a sleepaway camp moment or whatever it is. And it's not. Nope. You just hear her screams and you don't see it. Love it, man. I just I had to give a shout out to that moment because I was like, that's smart. Well done. Yeah, and I have to give kudos because uh, you mentioned that because we do see Brenda earlier on in the archery and that arrow narrowly misses her. Yeah, they're setting it up. Yeah. But it doesn't happen. So kudos to uh, Lori Bartman, who plays Brenda, because, you know, this is 1980 or 1979 when they filmed this. This is practical effects. So I don't know how they did the arrow scene. But the fact oh, that the she initial had, one, yeah, I'll step on the research right now. You want to know who shot that arrow? I knew who shot it. Oh, okay. But yeah. the fact that, that someone still had to shoot it, oh, even right. if they I lined it you. up and you still have to stand there for it. Absolutely. Good point. Good point. That kind of freaked me out. I was like, oh man, I would not like to see that in the shot sheet. I'm like, I hope that was the last day of her <laughs> filming to do that. God forbid. Yeah. Please. You can't pay me enough. No, I don't care who's shooting it. No kidding. Nowadays, yeah, it would just all be CGI, so it wouldn't be a big deal. But then, no thank you. Well, I guess force perspective, she might not be anywhere near it, but... True, good point. Still don't want to be standing there for that one. Yeah. Okay, so do you have a... Because I'm going to jump ahead to the to the ending. Okay, I do have one other uh, scene, and I'll make it quick. Okay. I just call it Bill and the Generator slash Alice in the Kitchen making coffee. Now, at this point, there's been a handful of kills. I just appreciate the filmmaking here. And I think it's really smart at this point, Bill and Alice are alone in the kind of the main cabin where they were playing strip monopoly, but you know, everybody else has gone off and basically gotten killed. So they're the last two and the generator has been turned off. So no power bills lit a couple of lamps and Alice seems to somehow be able to pass out on the couch. This is knowing that they found a bloody axe before this scene, actually. I I don't even understand how she could sleep at this point. But regardless, Bill goes out to check the generator for gas. And I love this because we see, again, these POV shots. He's in the generator room, the shed, basically, where this generator is. And he finds out that there's plenty of fuel in the generator. But the way that it's shot, you just think that the killer could come into this room at any point in time. Oh, I agree. And there's this, they do this really smart framing where you have Bill sort of in like frame right, maybe a little bit in the foreground, but he's checking the fuel and frame left, the entire left half of the frame is just this empty doorway, the doorway going into the generator room. And it's just dark. And you're just like, okay, the killer's got to come in at some point, or you'll see a hand reach out, or somebody run through the door. Nothing happens. It's just great building of tension, really smart framing. Just like, when is this going to happen? He's going to get killed here. We're going to see something, and it just doesn't happen. And instead, it's a smash cut to Alice waking up back at the cabin, screaming, Bill, Bill. And it's a decent jolt. It's great. And then she goes into the kitchen of the cabin to boil some water and make some coffee. It's super quiet. And the camera slowly moves in on her. 
And then she goes to the pantry door where crazy Ralph was standing inside earlier. Again, great setup. Kind of mirroring what we were just talking about with the archery range, where we saw the archery range earlier. Then it calls back to it later on. And here we're dealing with the pantry where crazy Ralph was in there earlier, which was a bit of a jolt and creepy as hell. And now when all hell's breaking loose, Alice in this moment goes into the pantry. Nothing's in there. It's great. She comes out with the sugar, goes back to the stove and camera then moves in even closer on her. It's just quiet. You just hear the hiss from the stove and it's just all really well choreographed. The camera movements, everything. And the point is nothing happens. Nothing happens. The tension builds though. The tension is real. And then it's great because she just has this look on her face and she's like, screw this. I'm going to find Bill. <laughs> and then the next shot is she's out in the, in the woods, but uh, that's it. So. Cool. Cause I couldn't remember what happened to Bill. And when that scene was going, I was like, Oh, he's going to get it. All right, here it comes. It doesn't happen. Oh, okay. It's going to happen. Nope. So yeah, it got me again all these years later. I was, I was waiting for it, waiting for it and, and nothing happens. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm going to jump to the very, very end. It's the final scare, just as iconic as uh, the Kevin Bacon kill. So we have Alice, the final girl, final survivor, and she's sitting in a raft. So we find out that Mrs. Voorhees has been the one that's been killing everyone in the camp. And just because of what happened to her son, who supposedly had drowned in the lake, and she just never wants this camp to open. So anytime someone tries to open it, she's been sabotaging it. And um, Alice is able to kill her. And she gets on the canoe in the middle of the night and basically just sleeps on the canoe until daytime. And she kind of wakes up. She's in the middle of the, the lake. And we hear the sirens of the police come in. And you're like, oh, okay, they're here to save her. Yay. And all of a sudden, we see our first reveal of Jason Voorhees jumping out of the lake, grabbing her and pulling her in. And even watching it now, you know it's coming and you're kind of like, oh, when's it exactly happen? And then just even watching it, just trying to look at the makeup that they did. Yeah. It was freaky. Certainly not expect it at all. It it's a horrific. great, yeah, it's a great jump scare. I hate it. It's so good. I hate it. It's the worst. It's so freaky, man. It's totally freaky. The makeup is awesome. Yes, it is. He looks like he's been at the bottom of the lake for years and he comes up and it gets you every time. They lull you into it. It's keep going though. Yeah, because he grabs her across the chest and pulls her off the canoe and you see the canoe flipping over and you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? And then you see her lurch up at the hospital. So then you're kind of asking yourself, does she imagine that? Did that really happen? What the, what the hell just happened? So it even makes it more confusing. Like your heart's already beating from the, the scene and then it's just confusion. Like what, what, what the fuck just happened? Where's it? And even she's like, what happened to the boy? Yeah. What happened to Jason? So you're, you're just like her, like, yeah, what, what did happen to the boy? What, what the hell was that? It's a great way to end the movie. Oh, it's wonderful, man. And I love when she is just completely exhausted and hunched over the side of the canoe out in the middle of the water, that still water, very creepy. And the cops are pulling up and the music it's laid on thick. It's like this heavy oh, yeah. piano synth 
score. And all I could imagine was Pat Duty playing this song on his keyboard. I was literally expecting to see someone with a piano in the scene just yeah. playing the music <laughs> while the cops were pulling up. You know, Pat Duty knows this song. Like he could play it. I'm yes. Sure, perfectly. Regardless, then on top of the fact that she wakes up in the hospital bed and is asking the police officer, what happened to Jason? Is, did you find Jason? Did you find the boy? And they're like, what are you talking about? And then the final shot of the movie is just the slow push in on that portion of the lake that's just completely still. And you're like, oh my God, are they going to do one last jump scare here? Is Jason going to come flying out of the water? And nothing happens. It's just the, the still surface of the lake. And that's when the movie ends. And it's like, oh my God, it's so creepy. So creepy. <laughs> Great way to end the movie. If you'll indulge me, Bill, I do have to go back. I apologize. I should have. I, I didn't know you were going to go back to the, are you going to jump to the end, jump. end, end? Go ahead. Uh, it's just that I have to give the whole shout out to Mrs. Voorhees. There's a, the entire, it's a, basically a chase sequence and a fight sequence between Mrs. Voorhees and Alice. And it's not perfect. There's some problems in this. But at the same time, I think Betsy Palmer is wonderful. And I just wanted to shout out this entire sequence, everything from the moment when Mrs. Voorhees shows up and how calm she is. And then she has these flashbacks to Jason drowning. And she says like, I am Jason, I am, which is funny. She's saying that in response to the flashback of her son drowning and calling out to her. But I think it's interesting that she actually says the words, I am Jason, I am. Right, yeah. Because we always think that the killer is Jason. And she's in that moment saying, I am Jason, but not meaning that, but she actually says those words. You know what I'm saying? Yes. But we get the story here. She lays it all out and she gets, this is the whole thing where she's like, yeah, I've been the one killing. I have to kill the camp counselors because they let my boy die while they were having sex. My boy was drowning in the lake. And it's like, yeah, okay, this is what it's all about right here. And the fact that now this alludes to my opening quote that we were laughing about earlier, because she just does this creepy thing where it's as if she's channeling her inner Jason. Her J- Jason is speaking through her, apparently, saying things like, kill her, mommy, kill her, don't let her get away. And she's responding by saying, I won't, don't worry, I won't. Her performance is great. The camera work again, the close-ups on her face, the close-ups on her mouth. We had shots of the moon. It's all very creepy. So I just wanted to mention uh, Betsy Palmer as Mrs. Voorhees. She has some great moments in that final sequence. Yeah, I would say it's pretty amazing up until she actually starts fighting with Alice. Right. And then it kind of goes downhill. But yeah, the when she just shows up, and just the whole calm down, calm down. It's okay. I'm, I'm here to take care of things. And Alice is freaking out. She's like, it's okay. It's okay. And then when she first sees, um, I think she sees Brenda first. And then, well, yeah, all hell breaks loose from that point. And there's a great kill there at the end, too. Yes. A lot of fun. It is a good kill. All right. So let us move on to Swiss cheese and complaint department. And what do we call it? Swiss cheese. Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. And if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. All right, so what do we have for Swiss cheese and complaints? I do have a bit of cheese. Oh, okay. Here's my my Swiss cheese, my hole in the plot. 
I simply wrote, Mrs. Voorhees is strong, but not that strong. True. Meaning, and this does kind of happen and I, in, in horror movies. It's a bit of a trope unto itself, I suppose. And you just go with it. However, we understand adrenaline is a powerful drug. But there's a, a few points here where we see what she's done uh, with her bodies. Because there happens, we only see actually see three or four kills in this movie. A lot of the other kills are alluded to. We hear screams, et cetera. We know they happen, but we don't know what happened to the bodies. And so there's one reveal where Bill has been propped up on the back of a door. We see arrows through his body and his throat is cut. So that means Mrs. Voorhees must have somehow shot him full of arrows and lifted him up onto that door. I had that down as a complaint. How the hell did she get him up there? Right. And then also the reveal of what happened to Steve Christie. We know that she stabbed him, but his body kind of falls halfway over like a roof to scare the hell out of Alice at one point. How did Mrs. Voorhees get his body up on the roof? And then there's one, oh shoot, now I can't think of it. She literally throws Brenda through the window. Thank you. That was it. In a chair. She throws Brenda's body, somehow throws Brenda's body through the window then runs back and gets into her Jeep and pulls up to the cabin. That's in my complaints. I don't know how she did that. Yeah. So those are three things right there. It's like, oh, I don't know. She's She looks like a sturdy woman. Yes. Yeah, she would have no problem kicking the shit out of Alice. Oh, no doubt. No doubt. Which is a problem with this whole scene. But still, to be able to do that with those bodies. Look, if you've ever tried to pick up uh, someone who's like, unconscious Mm -hmm. you know that's it's hard yeah it's hard for a strong person to do that was my my i think my swiss cheese said i don't think mr Voorhees could pull that off yeah i'll give that to you yeah i thought that was kind of interesting so the local police have no idea that the camp was opening that was just kind of weird and Mm. why why was that officer even at oh the officer was at the camp because of crazy row but the fact that he was what's going on here i think you would know what's going on in your local town that scene just didn't play for me at all. I got you. Sure. And I heard the writer didn't like that either. That was put in afterwards because he wanted feel he wanted the audience to feel that the camp was very isolated and there really was no help for them. And with having this cop there, he made it feel like th- there is a chance. There's there's right. outside help. Gotcha. I agree with that. You shouldn't have put totally. that in there. I totally agree. Did not like the initial cop. Hey, I got a here's a small complaint. In the beginning, when our adorable Annie has arrived in town and she's uh, walked into the convenience store and uh, she meets Enos, Enos is going to give her a ride in his truck. Does Enos get a little handsy with Annie? Oh, he did a double double grab there on the tush. Pushing her up into the truck, giving her a little lift up into the truck. Uh, oh, yeah. He gave her a lift, all right. He's like, what? what are you doing, Enos? Come on, man. Yeah, after he says, is everyone up there as pretty as you? Yeah, so, I was no, like, okay. Don't be a creeper, man. Just because you're giving a drive doesn't mean you get a ride too. <laughs> nice. All right. So we're talking about the Kevin Bacon scene. Yeah. So we're to assume that Mrs. Voorhees was under the bed the whole time. Correct. You know, I, that's funny. You bring that up because I was watching for that as well. I was like, when would she get underneath the bed? At what point do we just assume? Cause it does cut away. It's the scene is intercut right between the sex scene and the strip monopoly sequence. So and we don't know exactly what's on the other side of the bunk. 
where are things placed in the scene and how would she sneak under there? But I, I assume, yeah, then it, the same as you is like, was she underneath there the whole time? Yeah. Just waiting for her moment. And then I had to go back and watch it. Cause I was like, how did they not see Ned on the top bunk at that point? Mm. So I did watch it. And when Jack and Marcy first come in, Marcy actually backs her way into the bed. So she never does look up there because when they initially go in, it's too dark. She kind of backs her way into the bed. Then Jack lights a candle or lantern, whatever it is. And then it's lit. But at that time, she's already sitting down. So she's off the hook. But Kevin Bacon is walking towards her and he is eye level with that top bump. You would see that something is up there. Good call. Yeah, I thought that too. Yeah, I get it. You got a woman that's taken off her clothes and she's going to take up most <laughs> so of your, your focus, is focus but you're going to see that there's someone else in there. And then even when she gets out to go to the bathroom, there's a chance she should maybe catch something up there. So it's dark. So I might give her that. Marcy, I'm giving a pass. Jack, you should have saw it. Sorry. I hear what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I got you. And it just cracks me up that Mrs. Voorhees is probably under there the whole time listening to what the hell's going on. Yeah. I don't know. Hey, man, I've got some issues with Steve. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you did mention this earlier. I'd love to hear him. Uh, Steve Christie, man, just put on your shirt, dude. Just put on a shirt, man. You know, uh, you don't have anything to prove. I, I What the hell is going on between Steve and Alice? We're introduced to Steve Christie. He's he's running the show. Like Bill mentioned, he's the new proprietor and he's trying to get this camp ready on time and he's kind of cracking the whip and everybody's got jobs to do. And there's a quick uh, sequence. It's not quick, actually. It's awkward and long. It's when Alice is pounding some nails into the gutter, trying to secure the gutter on the roof. She's on a ladder and Steve, all bare chested, decides to go through some drawings from Alice and... He's like kind of stone faced and there's some awkward pauses here and he looks at her and she looks at him and he looks at her. And she looks at him and he's like, you're really a good artist. And when did you draw this one of me? And she's like, I drew it of you last night. And like, what's and then he's like, I she's like, I, I, I want to go back to California or something. I don't know what she says. And right. he's like, won't you stay for at least one more week to help us get this thing ready? And then you can make a decision to leave if you want. And basically we're like, is this a setup for some kind? Do they have a relationship? Were they dating or not? It's weird. It's weird. He's weird. His performance is weird. And then he hops into his Jeep. Like you said, no top on, but he knows it's going to rain. And he's like, I'll be back a little bit after lunch. No, not even close. Not even close. It's dark. It's raining. He's at the diner uh, making eyes with Sandy, according to Bill. Yep. And so he's being weird upon weird at this point. Way late. Steve, what the F are you doing, man? You're the one who's trying to be on point here with telling everybody to get on it. We got to get this thing prepped. You told him you'd be back a little bit after lunch. You're having dinner. I don't know what you're doing at the diner. What the hell's you just lose track of time? Didn't notice that the sun had gone down. And then... He's driving back. I don't know what happens there. Does he get stuck in the mud with his Jeep or he's trying to start the engine, but then he tells the cop that he got stuck basically because the cop's like, what happened? He's like, he couldn't get back in the Jeep. And he's like, well, not with the trailer. It's like, so what, what was his problem? Why Steve? And I, I don't know why Steve's in this movie. <laughs> so, Steve. Yeah. It's funny. Cause when he gets in the, the Jeep after he leaves the diner, 
it makes it seem like the battery's going to go. Mm-hmm. So then at first, when I saw the car on the side of the road, it was like, his battery died? But why would he have stopped the car for the battery to die? And then when he said it was stuck, I don't know. And then where did he get that trailer from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Steve. Yeah, I don't well, know. I guess he ran it that day. I don't know. But yeah, I agree with you. Steve's creepy, kind of useless. He was the one kill. I was like, good, you deserved it. It's just funny. Here's a big complaint. I'm just saying this real quick. No way am I going anywhere in that camp all by myself in the rain at night. Fuck that. <laughs> Fuck that. I'm squatting outside my cabin door to take a shit or to take a piss if necessary. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care, Bill. I'm not walking around that place by my. Those guys, They. I don't know how they did it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. So speaking of bathrooms then, Marcy. <laughs> Was that the worst ugly kill face ever? <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? She's just standing there like, Aah. you waited like a full 30 seconds before the killer comes down with the ax. You don't scream. You don't, you don't even put up defense hands. The, the editing did not do her any favors. No. Yeah. It's like, oh, you're so pretty until you made that ugly kill face. She's cute. Yeah, she was. Not so much with a, an ax in her forehead. No. Great makeup. It looks awesome. Yes, it does. That was uh, almost a complaint I put in here. I'll just say it right now. So it is officially a complaint. That axe should have had a lot more blood on it when they found it in the bed. Yeah, probably. Looked pretty clean. Why put an axe in there with just a little trickle of blood? Why even put the axe in there to begin with? I don't know. That made no sense. So I'll go to the ending. And this is why I did not put the Mrs. Voorhees reveal at the end. Why does she even do that? Like, why does she do that whole charade of pulling up in the Jeep, pretending to Alice everything's going to be okay, and then tell her she's going to kill her, and then explain why she's going to do it, when everyone else, she just offs? I thought the same thing. It's a great, great point. I get it. As an audience, yes, we need to know why this is all going on. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, it just seemed really strange. You know, what I did like is the fact that she does pull up in the Jeep, because it's that subtle, if you were paying attention to the movie, you're like... Oh, it's the Jeep from the beginning mm-hmm. where she picked up Annie as she was hitchhiking. Oh, yeah. And then she drags Annie back into the Jeep, too. So it's, yeah, it's another. Right. Yeah. She does a lot of heavy lifting in this movie. Yes. But good call. It's the Yeah. It's like, why does she decide to have a convo with uh, Alice instead of just killing her right then and there to just lay out the whole her whole reason for doing all that she's doing? Yeah, it's the. Maybe. Murder she wrote. Oh, that's what I always think of. Maybe she's told Ned in the cabin before she slit his throat. We just missed that. <laughs> right. She actually did explain her whole motive to every character. It's just we never saw it. it yeah. Cut it. That's in the director's cut. Yes. It's all in the deleted scenes. Mm-hmm. She told different versions. Like the Joker, she had like different versions of it that she yes. told to everybody just to be even more crazy. <laughs> I know you talked about the opening, but I have to laugh with uh, Barry and Claudette, which are our first two victims. Uh-huh. Because it opens with them playing, I think Barry's playing the uh, guitar, right? And him and Claudette are just making the googly eyes at each other big time. Like, totally obvious. You can see what's going on. I'm like, why did you even leave the room to have sex? Yeah. Everybody knows. That's <laughs> yeah, pretty and just the fact, And just the fact he just stops, <laughs> puts the guitar down, and just like takes her by the hand, they just kind of walk off. That just seemed really awkward. It oh, completely. It's totally obvious and weird. But it was funny. Yeah, it made me laugh. I was the other, like, wow. I would have been like, if I was in the the group of kids, and just be like, okay, have fun, go and have sex. Yeah, I know. We, we know what you're doing. Make sure you wear a condom. <laughs> 
It's, that's great. It's so true, though. You're absolutely right. A little nitpicky, but did Brenda have to brush her teeth in the community bathroom when she has a sink in her own cabin? Oh, yeah. thought that was weird. That's true. Clearly, she has a sink in her own cabin. I looked mm-hmm. at it. I had to check. I was like, oh, yeah, that's a sink. Okay. And then I was like, Brenda, why are you wandering outside in your nightgown, in the rain, in the dark? You're going to catch your death. Oh, oh I, I didn't get that either. See? Nice. And she did. She caught her death. All right. Yes. Hey, all your friends are missing and you find an axe in a bed with blood on it. The phones don't work. The truck is dead. You're acting rather calm, Alice. I don't know what was going on here, but Bill and Alice were a little bit too calm for me. She's like, oh, Steve will be back soon. It's like, hey, act with a little urgency or some kind of fear here because things are not looking good. And by the way, Steve was supposed to be back a little bit after lunch. Yeah. That didn't happen. So a lot of things have gone wrong and I'd be a little more freaked out. Mm -hmm. And my thing is with Alice at this point is like, how does she just let Bill, first of all, how does she fall asleep on the couch? And then she lets Bill go check on the generator. And there's just no way she'd be left alone at that point. It's just dumb in my opinion. I mean, this is horror movie tropes. It's going to happen. You have to go with it. I'm going to say Alice is probably either a little tipsy or a little stoned. She might have more right. passed out than fell asleep. I'd just be freaking out at that point. Yeah, I would too. After would finding totally the axe in a bed and everybody else is missing and yeah, generators gone out, no telephone. I have to say, I was impressed with her in the one scene where she goes back to the main cabin and she gets the rope and ties the doorknob. I was like, that's pretty smart. I love it. I love it. I'm glad you brought that up because I love that moment. I'm like, wow, that's kind of ingenious. I wouldn't have thought that. But then she was stupid barricading the door. (laughs) Exactly what I wrote. We were on the same page. This is great. I understand tying the rope around the handle. If the door opens outward, that's brilliant. You can't open the door. That'll stall her. That's great. Mr. Voorhees can't get in. But then she stacks the furniture in front of the door as if it opens inward. Yeah. So was she planning like, Oh, if she manages to get through the door, the, the stacked furniture is just going to trip her for a moment, trip her up. I'm like, no. Th- right. Then you you'd have to wait for stand there with a bat or something because then she'd have to get over the obstacles and then you beat her. But that's that wasn't her plan. She was just throwing stuff up there. That made no sense to me. I was confused. She was smart and then a total dumbass in the next moment. So what do you think Mrs. Voorhees has been doing this whole time? I probably should do, use this for additional questions, but I'm going to ask now. All right. So you find out. The drownings in uh, 57. The murders are in 58. Right. Something happens. The lake got poisoned in the 60s. So like 15 years, nothing has happened. Is she just working a regular job in town? Just waiting to hear about something happening in the camp? That's a long time to not be doing anything. That's true. She's, uh, I don't know, whittling. Was she living in a different state? Flew back in because she heard the camp was opening? Well, that's, I mean, that's her whole purpose for killing is, it's camp counselors at Crystal Lake. So if the camp's closed the whole time, she's, yeah, she doesn't really have anything to do. Yeah. She's just waiting for it to reopen. I know her backstory. I'm surprised I haven't done a TV show. You know, show that'd be that. great. That you just made me think of that'd be a cool prequel to do because they do speak of the fires that happen and then the water goes bad. Yeah. That's what Enos tells Annie when she, he's driving her to the crossroads to go back to that time to see what actually happened what was uh mrs Voorhees up to what mm-hmm. hand you know how did she what hand did she have in those events and did people die in those fires or did people get poisoned by the water or whatever i don't know yeah 
Hey, at the end, when Alice gets into the canoe, that's her way to get out. I know. By the way, she just killed the main baddie. She killed the boss. She got right. to the boss level, killed the main boss. She literally took a machete and beheaded Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, let me get this. Amazing little slow motion screaming shot from Mrs. Voorhees, and then her head gets lopped off. Oh, oh, that's that is a great moment. When her head gets cut off and you still see her hands clenching oh, yep. in slow motion. Like you just that's how angry she was mm-hmm. and furious that she was still clenching her hands, even though she's missing her head. Right. But they should have came up with another $10,000 for a fight coordinator. That fight is horrible. (laughs) Well, that was my other complaint is that Alice knocks out Mrs. Voorhees three times. Right. And doesn't kill her and just keeps running off. And then Voorhees just keeps getting up and coming after her. It's like, Alice, if you didn't learn after the first time or second time, next time you knock her out, Kill the bitch. Just kill the bitch and be done with it. She finally cuts her head off and then decides to get into a canoe and go into the middle of the lake. That's genius, Alice, because why? Why? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? So we can all shit our pants two minutes later when Jason comes out of the lake. That's one of those things as a writer, like, all right, how do I get Jason to come out of the lake? Oh, we'll just put Alice in the canoe. Just have her drift off. That'll make perfect sense. All right. Anything else for complaints? That's all I got, man. All right. So let's move on to, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut, or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's that actor. Yeah. All right, Chase, who do you got for, hey, it's that actor? All right. This was tough. It was. I didn't know who to choose because there was nobody to choose for me. I couldn't find anybody. I was looking through everybody. I'm like... There's nobody that jumped out to me. I was like, oh, I know that guy. That guy seems familiar. That woman seems familiar. Nope, none of them. So I kind of closed my eyes and uh, no, I actually went with Ari Lehman, who plays Jason. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was trying to figure out, I was like, who was that? So he plays young Jason, who comes out of the water. The scariest, one of the scariest moments in cinematic history, man. It's still, that's, that's a chilling, just chilling, bone chilling moment. Anyway, I don't know much about this guy, R.A. Lehman, but I'm just going to read you some of his credits. He's still working today. God bless him. From 1980 on, I'm just going to read some of the titles of the films that he has appeared in. 1980, obviously we have this film Friday the 13th. I'm jumping right into the 2000s. We have Three Thug Mice, that's a short. Okay. Hellophone, that's Hellophone, Terror Overload, Death Woods, Cheerleader Camp to the Death, Bite School, Pi Day Die Day, Camp Killer, Leaf Blower Massacre 2, Clown Motel, Spirits Arise, The Lurker, Easter Holocaust, here's my favorite, Slutty the Clown. Oh my God. <laughs> Carnal Monsters. Grindsploitation 10, Milk in It, and Clown Motel 2, which is in post-production as we speak. He's got a ton of work, though. Oh, he's working his ass off, man. Wow. And I, I skipped a whole bunch, by the way. Right. Check out Ari Lehman's filmography on IMDb. These titles are amazing. So he is pretty much stuck to the horror genre. I miss most of these. Most You've seen some of them? No, I've always seen Friday the 13th. Which one did you see, Bill? Hellophone? Yeah. What was the one that was in the sequel? Not the clown one, the other one. 
leaf blower massacre. <laughs> yeah, it's like you couldn't even be a leaf blow massacre the first one. Come on, man. He's like, ah, oh, I gotta get the sequel. It's one of my favorites. I missed the first one. All right, who do you got, man? That's awesome. I can't top that one. <laughs> Cannot top that one with the. Uh... So I went with uh, Ron Carroll, who played uh, okay. Sergeant Tierney. Yeah, because this was his big screen debut. He doesn't have much of filmography. Um, his career seemed to be more prominent in plays and musical theater, but he does have some uh, major credits. Um, he was like in, in Golden Pond, uh, And He Got Your Gun, Oklahoma. So, yeah, he's a big time musical theater guy. Um, his film roles included small parts in Spring Break from 1983, House and House 2, the second story. But the role I did recognize him from was he was Osborne in Deep Star Six from 1989, the year they did all the underwater movies. He had a small role in that. His last film credit was in 2005's remake of The Producers, and uh, he is still he's still kicking. He's still around. Right on. Makes sense that he would be in Deep Star Six. That was a Sean S. Cunningham film. There you go. Right. Yep. Sean S. Cunningham being the director and producer of this movie. Yeah. Deep Star Six. You know, I came across that in Sean S. Cunningham's filmography, and all I could think of was Miguel Ferrer. Love that actor. Oh, yeah. The big death scene. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. I'll have to revisit that movie someday. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure it might be a future podcast episode. Let's do that. Leviathan, The Abyss. There's like 10 of those underwater adventure movies. Leviathan. Yes. Crazy. Great stuff. So Ron Carroll. All right. Yeah. Uh, So let's move on to facts and trivia. What do we have for facts and trivia for Friday the 13th? So the movie was filmed at, I'd like this. I'd like this name a lot. Camp Nobi Bosco. Yep. Camp Nobi Bosco in New Jersey. The camp is still in operation and it has a wall of Friday the 13th memorabilia to honor that the movie was set there. Yes, so uh, Nobi Bosco stands for North Bergen Boy Scouts. There you go. And this is cool, is um, the camp actually hosts tours and experiences throughout the year, which is run by the Crystal Lake Adventures, which is a group of camp alumni, uh, which have been organizing tours at the camp since 2011. And the events support restorations projects at the historic scout camp, as well as supporting youth camping programs throughout the Northern New Jersey Council of Boy Scouts of America. Uh, yeah, I went online and you can do, and we're not getting paid for this. I'm just, I'm just sharing this information. Oh, no, it's cool. I think this is great. Yeah. So it's almost like a six hour uh, adventure and they um, screen the movie for you. And then they give you some uh, cool like Friday the 13th merchandise. So they take you around, show you all the, where all the major sets are and then screen the movie. Yeah, it sounds kind of cool. I think they're, they're next I, week. That would on. be a blast, man. That would yeah. be fun to do. Yeah, I'd like to check that out. The only way you can get on the camp is you have to sign up for the tours. It's not one of those you can just pull up. It is private property. So don't think you can just show up and check things out. Just FYI. Got it. All right. Got to plan ahead. So about the camp itself. So most of the locations and sets were already there, which was good. So the crew only had to build the the bathroom set. Hmm. That was kind of interesting. I thought for sure that would have been there of all the sets. So Rex Everhart, who uh, played Enos, did not film the truck scenes with Robbie Morgan, who played right. Annie. So she either had to act with an imaginary Enos or exchange dialogue with Tasso Stravakis, who would sit in the truck with her. And I think Tasso, he was um, Tom Savini's assistant with the uh, right. special, special makeup effects. Yeah. 
So the, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then, yeah, because then when I thought about the scene again, yeah, you know, there is never really a two shot with them in the truck. It is always going back and forth. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So it must have kind of yeah, weird. It's almost like she's looking into the camera a little bit, like when she's talking to Enos, like, because it's like you're, it's from his POV when she, he's looking at her. And it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. He wasn't actually there. So she probably literally did a whole day of filming where she's just sitting on the side of a car or a truck and just talking to a camera. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be a weird day. Yeah, for sure. Because it's not like it you is, can have, yeah. it's not like you can really bounce the lines off the actor if the car's move. I don't know. Well, I guess it's it's, it's strange. I can speak from experience when you're supposed to be you have to keep an eye line. You're not looking directly into the lens, of course. You have to be, but you're looking either slightly to the right or left of camera, just pretending that that person whom you're speaking to is there. That's yeah. it. You just have to be in the moment and you have to go off the cues. Probably had somebody reading Enos's lines off camera and she just had to respond at the right time or most likely as well. Maybe they weren't even reading his lines. She just read her lines uh, off just slightly off camera, you know, looking off camera and they edited it together. They just cut back and forth. Yeah. Especially because you're in a moving vehicle. I mean, the vehicle's probably on a trailer and it's getting pulled. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you just have the camera, the director's got to be somewhere. And yeah. Yeah. Cameraman sitting in the driver's seat. Yeah. Where the hell would you put your person to read lines off? Yeah. I'm impressed. That's gotta be a difficult day. It's not, not as easy as it sounds. No, no, it's awkward. Yeah. A lot of folks, if you're not familiar, a lot of you may be, but filmmaking can be a lot of awkward setups for everybody involved, squeezing into cars and small places, whatnot, and trying to make it look realistic and knowing, and then to have the know-it-all to know that the final product, how it's going to look on screen will look completely natural when yep. the entire process is totally unnatural. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Bill Bant. Yes. Betsy Palmer, Mrs. Voorhees, said that if it were not for the fact that she was in desperate need of a new car, she would have never accepted the role of Pamela Voorhees. In fact, after she read the script, she called the movie a piece of shit. (laughs) Over the years, however, Palmer did warm up to the film as it made her more famous than infamous. And she made appearances at conventions and in documentaries to discuss it. Yeah, it's funny because they make a big deal that she's in the movie. So I was like, oh, she must have a huge filmography. But she didn't really have that many credits. Mm-hmm. She hadn't really acted in a film in a while. So I was kind of surprised at that. Yeah, she definitely was a very attractive woman back in the day. Yeah. She wasn't attractive, you know, then, but. Of course. Right, right. Yeah, very interesting um, career. Um, so this was interesting because uh, even when I was watching this, I was like, oh, did they actually do what I just thought they did? So the snake that got killed in the movie, that was a real snake. And it wasn't a snake they found in the woods. That was someone's pet that they asked to borrow and ended up killing it. Wow. This this actually is a snuff film. Yes, it is. I did read that. I didn't know it was somebody's pet snake. Well, I heard, I heard different versions of it. Like it was a pet wrangler first or a snake wrangler first, and then it was someone's pet. So I'm not sure what the exact truth is. But someone yeah. owned that snake and they did not know that that snake was going to get killed. So the snake we actually watched get killed in the movie actually happened. That right. that stuff I know for sure. Yeah. 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 I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Animals were harmed in the making. Of this, yes, so. there was. Yes. There is no uh, disclaimer at the end of the movie. Yeah. That, that would definitely would not fly today. 
No, they, no, they didn't do not... that. They didn't do that back then, so they got away with it. Yeah, it's a little upsetting. I don't know. It just bothers me a little bit. While most of the cast and crew stayed at local hotels during filming, some of the most dedicated, including Tom Savini and the aforementioned Tasso Stavrakis, they stayed at the actual campsite. They had Savini's Betamax VCR and only a couple of movies, such as Barbarella. Damn you, Tom. Damn you. Making me watch that movie in college. Barbarella and Marathon Man. They had them on videotape to keep themselves entertained. So each night they would watch one of those movies. To this day, Savini says he can recite those movies by heart. Talk about a contrast in movies. Barbarella Marathon Man. I know. What the hell? That's crazy. So, um, yeah, speaking of uh, Savini. So uh, when Brenda gets thrown through the window there at the end, that is uh, Tom Savini going through, doing a little bit of a stunt. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't notice. So good job there, because usually you could tell right away, but no, I couldn't tell. Yeah, no, you can't. I have a special place in my heart for all PAs out there. I've done a bit of PA work myself, that being production assistant. Willie Adams was a PA for the film, although he spent most of his time working behind the camera. He did play the male counselor in the 1958 scene, the beginning of this movie, and holds the unique distinction of being the first murder victim in a Friday the 13th film. Yeah, that was cool when I saw that. Yeah. I wonder if that was one of those. He just showed up and was like, hey, guess what? Can you play guitar? You're going to get murdered today. Okay. Uh, do you have anything else for facts and trivia? I actually, here's my last little piece of trivia, which I love. Sean S. Cunningham, er, director and producer, he came up with the title of the film and placed an ad in the trade papers to create interest in the movie before even having a script. Yeah, that was smart. Brilliant. And he got the, all the money he wanted. Just from putting them. I know. I hate when I see ideas like that and they're like, yeah, you can't do that now. Yeah. He's like, this is a great title, which it was. Good for him. Um, so, yeah, there's tons of facts and trivia. You can find out about Friday the 13th. Uh, I would recommend uh, if you ever have the chance and have the time to check out Crystal Lake Memories, the complete history of Friday the 13th. It's a documentary. It's close to seven hours long. Um, I saw it. it is currently up on YouTube. So try to catch it now before they pull it down. I only think it's been up a couple months. I will put a link in the show notes. Nice. So check that out. So anything you want to know about Friday the 13th, there is a good way to go. They interview cast, crew, directors, all that kind of stuff. So uh, that is your definitive Friday the 13th documentary. Okay, moving on to box office. So Friday the 13th was released on May 9th, 1980 in um, 1127 theaters. On an estimated budget of $550,000, it grossed $39.8 million domestically and another $20 million internationally. It debuted number one at the box office, but was knocked out the following week by the Long Riders. And then the following week, a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back came out. So Friday the 13th ended up being the 17th highest grossing movie in the U.S. in 1980. So moving on to reviews. So for the third episode in a row, our movie was not reviewed on Cisco and Ebert, but on a special episode of Sneak Previews called Women in Danger, Gene and Roger discussed what they thought was a disturbing new trend in American movies. Horror movies in which young women are raped and murdered, and the audience is invited to take the killer's side. Friday the 13th was one of the films featured in this episode, and of course, they did not give it a good review. So technically, they would have gave it two thumbs down. 
So Friday the 13th has a tomato meter score of 63% on Rotten Tomatoes and has an IMDb rating of 6.4. So that brings us to additional thoughts and questions. So uh, what are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Friday the 13th? Well, I was just going to tack on to uh, what you were talking about with the box office. Here's an additional thought that some of the other high-profile horror film releases of 1980. Okay. The Shining. Yes. Dressed to Kill, The Fog, and Prom Night. Big year. Yeah. One of, one of those movies I've not seen from beginning to end yet. I just wanted to give this shout because I always think of this. One of the best openings or opening sequences of a slasher film is from 1996's Scream, uh, which was a brilliant take. I mean, it's oh, yeah. a movie about horror movies mm-hmm. and fans of horror movies and there's a horror movie within. I mean, it is a horror movie. And in that opening sequence, we have Drew Barrymore on the phone with the killer, Ghostface. And Ghostface is testing her with a little movie trivia. And the final question he asks is, who is the killer in Friday the 13th? And she gets it wrong. She yeah. thinks she's gotten it right. She's like, oh, I got no, I know, I know. It's Jason. I think in a panic, I probably would have got it wrong too. Yeah. But I always think of that. Yeah. Because... That is something you would easily get tripped up on. Yep. Everybody thinks it's Jason, but as we know, nope, it was his mom. All right. Quick question. So do you think uh, when Jason comes out of the lake, so is that a dream or do you think that really happened? That's a legit question, uh, especially now knowing how the franchise continues after the movie, because I think we're led to believe that he survived the drowning and has been living in the woods, right? And has is basically insane, et cetera. And then goes on to have different iterations and has kind of superhuman strength and stuff and comes back from the dead at some point, one of the sequels. So knowing that it's possible that it was, I always assumed it was a dream sequence. I always thought it was a dream. Yeah. I I think so. In the context of the movie, I would think it's a dream. And I think it's really creepy to think though, the way that the film ends because her, one of her last, I think her last line, that's Alice. She says, then he's still down there. Mm-hmm. And to think that the boy's body may still be at the bottom of the lake really creeps me out. But I always thought the actual attack she suffers was a dream. I agree with you. So we'd mentioned Sean S. Cunningham. You know, he did direct a ton of stuff, but, you know, he did this film, of course. Then throughout the 80s, he does Stranger is Watching, Spring Break, The New Kids, Deep Star Six, we talked about. But he did produce a lot of stuff. He was a producer on this film. And then those films I just mentioned, including and then also House, House 2, the second story. I, I'm looking up House. That's one of those classic VHS cover slash posters. Oh, yeah. Of the disembodied hand, mm-hmm. like deteriorating hand with the bones popping out, ringing the doorbell. I'll ne- that's a great image. That's funny because we had talked about in the last episode about Roger Ebert's review of major league two, how he never went to go see the first one Oh, right. because of that. That's the same thing that happened to me because I saw house two first and I was like, uh, if this is what house two is like. I don't need to see the first. So I, I still have never seen house, but house two has a clever title house Two: the second story. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, then Sean S Cunningham would go on to produce a lot of the other Friday 13th films. Yeah. Jason Goes to Hell, Jason X, Freddy versus Jason. Surprised didn't go back and direct another one. I know. I guess he was just into producing. So, uh, yeah, just a shout out to him. And 
Uh, do you have any questions before? I have a couple more that are quick. All right. Yeah, I got two quick questions. Man, so what happens to all those kids that were supposed to go to that camp? Because they're talking about it was like underprivileged kids. They're all looking forward to this. They only got nothing. I kind of felt bad there at the end. Where are they going to go? Yeah. They got to find another. Yeah. I was thinking too with that staff. Annie was the only one that was going to be running the kitchen. I'm guessing they maybe had about 50 kids coming. So they didn't have that many counselors. Each one had their own cabin. Right. That's a great question. They needed more staff. Yeah, no doubt. Kids that don't even exist. And I was like, oh, I feel bad. Okay. As well, you know, because it's, it is. It's all about the kids. Yeah, it is. Things you think about as an adult. That's, That's for sure. Especially you when you have kids. Well, here that leads to my next question, Bill Ben. Okay. As a kid, do you have any summer camp stories? I didn't really do much summer camp, to be honest. Neither did I. I went to a soccer camp one point. Did you? Yeah. I did a, a day camp here or there. The best camp I ever did do is day camp for um Cub Scouts. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot of cool things that week. It was only a week long. I, I kind of wish I did more of that one. The other ones I went to, I yeah, no thanks. Camp was not for me. I did camp like things like as I was older, mm-hmm. like in college. I did Outward Bound with my sister, which was awesome, which was like a week long rafting, scouting rapids in Colorado River through like Utah. It was awesome. And then uh, like doing kind of a college prep camp in Boston, which was awesome. But yeah, not as a young kid, I just didn't do a lot of. Yeah, I kind of got lucky because the way my parents' work schedules were, my parents weren't home for maybe like two hours during the afternoon. So we either had a babysitter or then I got old enough that, you know, I was a latchkey kid and I just watched my brother and sister. Yeah. And we were just out back playing anyway, so it was no big deal. So they didn't have to really worry about sending us to camp because usually someone was home. Gotcha. And that's back when kids would actually go out and play and interact with friends and all that kind of stuff and not worry about everything else that's going on in the world, unfortunately. Right. Different time. Yep. Different time. Have you watched all the films in this series? Do you have a favorite? So the only one I have not seen all the way through is five. Seem to watch the first 20 minutes of it. And I never seem to get through it. My favorite, just because it's so batshit crazy, is six, Jason Lives. And um, this is second. Got it. Just the fact that they decide to dig Jason up and he comes back, a.k.a. Frankenstein style by being electrocuted and brought back to life right one of the ones i've watched a lot was seven with the psychic girl and i can't remember what that one's called i wouldn't know man i have not watched all of the sequels in their entirety i've watched bits and pieces you know one i think i may have watched in its entirety is i think maybe is it jason x is that the one that was space space? yes because i just had to know (laughs) i was like how is this gonna work all right. Good to know. Jason, so for you, it was uh, six and then one. The first one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, outside of five, I've seen them all. Even Freddy. What about, uh, now, did they they remade this or they did a reboot, right? Correct. Back in 2009. Right. That's I, that's the only one I've seen in the theater. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I might have saw it with Marwan and my wife. I think three of us saw it, yeah. Did you go to the Black Cow Cafe afterward? Oh, maybe we went before. You may have. I just remember when you'd come to see me at wait tables after, uh, was it My Bloody Valentine? Oh, man. The, I, yes. <laughs> I always re, you have the same reaction every time I remind you of that because Hillary God made you go it. see that. And you were just hanging your head when you came to dinner. Ladies and gentlemen, I used to work at a great place called Black Cow Cafe, and I worked there for a number of years, loved it. I have just great memories and nothing but good things to say about the restaurant. But my friends would come and see me. Uh, they were nice enough to visit me there. And uh, they came after seeing that horror film. 
and Bill was not happy about having seen it. The fact that I spent $50 on tickets to go see that movie. I vaguely remember seeing the trailer for the movie. And we were, t- I was talking to you guys about that. That's funny. Great stuff. Hey, last question. Mm-hmm. Can you rank the best kills in this movie? Top three. All right. So we have to go Bacon first, Voorhees second, uh, maybe Annie third. Oh, we were so close. Yeah. I had Annie fourth. Okay. But, you know, after we talked about Marcy's kill, you might be right. I had Bacon first as well. Got to put Bacon at number one. Uh, Voorhees at two. I put Marcy at three just because the axe, the the head, the effect, the uh, the, the final effect shot is good. Yes, really cool. But, but the, the fact she made that face—it's that weird. Yeah, she's screaming kind of too long and has that weird face. It holds mm-hmm. on her face too long. So yeah, okay. I, you know what? I'm, yeah, I'll have to change it. I got to. I, I think I agree with you. It's got to go. Bacon Voorhees then Annie. Is my last question. Watching the movie, uh, Lori Bartman who played Brenda. Brenda, yeah. How many times watching this did you think it was Laurie Singer from Footloose? Oh, sure. I get that. I see that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, we lost Laurie a couple of years ago to cancer. Yeah. But yeah, I was like, oh my God, they could, they could be sisters, or cousins or something. Right. Every time no I looked at her, I was like, that's who she reminded me of. I totally see it. All right. So let's move on to recommendations. What is our recommendation of Friday the 13th? What do we think? I absolutely recommend this 100%. If you're a fan of the slasher film genre and you want a little bit of film history, you go back and watch this. You watch it for Tom Savini's makeup effects. You watch it for to, to watch the classic techniques on how to create tension through camera movement and through framing and through choreography within scene and or shot. You know, like I had mentioned in the beginning, the last 40 minutes of this movie, I think, really cooked with gas. And I think it has one of the all-time great finishes and flourishes at the end. It has a wonderful reveal and the icing on the cake, the topper at the end. So, again, this film really just has a place in the history of the horror genre. And it did, you know, when it sets off such a huge franchise and... People love these movies. I get it. And this was the first. You, you got to have an appreciation for the first. So, yes, I recommend it. It's fun. And it, this is a great party movie, too. It's fun to watch on Halloween or whatever. If you want a, a few good scares and a few good laughs, too, with friends, it's a great one to watch with the group. So I recommend it. All right, ditto for me. Uh, I did enjoy watching this again. And like you said, too, if you're into American cinema, especially the slasher genre, yeah, Psycho, Halloween, Friday the 13th. That's the three you have to watch. I keep hoping they bring it back. I'm, I'm looking forward to another Friday the 13th. I know it's uh, in court crap who owns this thing. So who knows if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, being from 1980, special effects still hold up. Yeah, there's not much of a story, but you see everything there that set up everything that was to become afterwards. So right, check it out. Yeah, just to see the beginnings of it, because like you mentioned, Halloween had come out before and it owes a lot to that film. But this also just starts those, you you see where the tropes kind of began. I'm not saying this was the very first film to do it, but it was one that entered the popular conscience. Yes. So that people were really aware of, okay, this is how it's going to be for a while Mm -hmm. in this genre. So great stuff, man. 
All right. So I think that about wraps up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to subscribe, give us a review and rate us. We really appreciate the support. If you want to reach out, you can email us at all 80s movies podcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, or recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at All 80s Movies Podcast or tweet us at Podcast All 80s. Next week, our Summer at the Cinema series continues as we will be discussing the comedy drama Mystic Pizza, starring Annabeth Gish, Julia Roberts, and Lily Taylor. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Killer, mommy. Killer. She can't hide. No place to hide. Get her, mommy. Get her. Killer. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. Uh, there, here's something you're going to have to say this for me, actually, but I want you to say the working title for this script in the voice of the substitute teacher from summer school. Okay. Okay. Victor Miller's the writer of this movie, his working title for the script was Long Night at Camp Blood. Long Night at Camp Blood? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brilliant.